0: Welcome to Conversations at Mount Vernon's Washington Library. The Fred W. Smith National Library for the Study of George Washington at Mount Vernon serves as the premier resource for all who are interested in the study of George Washington and the revolutionary and founding eras. Every year, the library hosts numerous scholars who share our dedication to generate and disseminate new knowledge about all things Washington. The library's founding director Dr. Douglas Bradburn has the opportunity to sit down with these scholars to explore their research and we are so excited to share those conversations with you.
1: Hi I'm Doug Bradburn founding director of the Fred W. Smith National Library for the Study of George Washington here at lovely Mount Vernon and I want to introduce a special conversation at the Washington Library. This week's episode isn't like normal episodes in which I question a recent author and speaker here, but it is the audio from our 2016 founding debates, which is a program we held to celebrate the third anniversary of the library's opening on September 27th, 2016, uh, and the role of the library in fostering debate and discussion. Now, this debate was called Hamilton versus Jefferson on Executive Power, What Would Washington Say? It was generously funded by the Ammerman Family Foundation and featured prominent scholars, including Alan Taylor of the University of Virginia. That's a two-time Pulitzer Prize winner. Uh, he, of course, is the Thomas Jefferson Memorial Foundation chair at UVA, and he was representing Thomas Jefferson. On the other side was Richard Brookheiser, editor of the National Review, inventor of Hamilton, the modern man. Uh, he is defending Hamilton. And Brookheiser, of course, is a National Humanities Medal winner. Uh, We had Jeffrey Rosen of the National Constitution Center moderating the debates. Uh, Jeffrey is a a great friend and partner. And I was on the panel as well defending George Washington's position on the issue of executive power. I think you might be able to guess who won that debate. It was here at Home Turf in Mount Vernon. I hope you enjoy listening to it
2: as much as I enjoyed taking part in it. Good evening, everyone. This is uh, the second installment of the founding debate series. The first one took place uh, in um, 2014 at the one year anniversary of the Fred W. Smith National Library opening. And actually tonight is precisely the the third anniversary of uh, of the opening of the library. So we're delighted to have you all here. I want to first recognize the Ammerman Family Foundation, which actually created the founding debates in honor of my predecessor, Jim Reese. Many of you in the audience know Jim, you know what he meant to this place, and so we're really grateful for this gift and that we continue to honor Jim. Uh, The foundation's represented by Joy Ammerman and by her husband Dennis Franks and by son Matthew Ammerman. So thank you all for being here. So uh, I'd also like to offer a special thank you to our partnership institution, uh, the National Constitution Center in Philadelphia, to Jeffrey Rosen. Uh, It's the first and only institution in America established by Congress to disseminate information about the Constitution on a nonpartisan basis to raise awareness and understanding of the Constitution among American people. So in that sense, we're perfect partners. So thank you for that. So, you probably all know this, but it's the season for debates. <laughs> and little could Joy, Dennis, and Matthew, and the Amherman Foundation have imagined that we'd be holding this debate in the midst of all this electoral uncertainty. But uh, our mission at Nonvernon, among other things, is to place today's events in historical context. And what better way than to hold our own old-fashioned debate this evening? Here, here's why I think it's important. Um, in early July, the acclaimed columnist, Peggy Noonan, wrote about the world's leadership vacuum. Here's what she said. The leaders of the world aren't a very impressive group right now. There's a sense with some of them of playing out as an historical or cultural string that they're placeholders in some way. Many are young, yet so much more around them feels tired. Which has me thinking again of the concept, concept of the genius cluster. They happen in history and no one knows why. It was a genius cluster that invented America. Somehow, Franklin, Jefferson, Washington, Adams, Madison, Hamilton, Jay, and Monroe came together in the same place at the exact same time and invented something new in the history of man. I asked a great historian about it once, how did that happen? He thought about it too and he said, providence. It is a world crying out for bigness, wisdom, steady hands and steady eyes, so we could use a genius cluster. So tonight we'll have an opportunity to hear from uh, some part of that genius cluster as represented by our, our debaters and uh, Jeffrey will play the role of Lester Holt. Um, <laughs> and uh, we're really gonna examine this evening, Washington, Jefferson and Hamilton's views on executive power. And it's our commitment tonight to all of you in attendance. We wanna just uh, commit to a few things. We promise civility. No one's gonna step on each other's lines. We promise truth and substance and fact checking is perfectly welcome. Uh, We promise a full airing of different points of view without regard to political correctness and we promise a better understanding of the lost art of compromise. So with that, I'm pleased to introduce two of tonight's participants, Jeffrey Rosen from the National Constitution Center and Doug Bradburn from our own Fred W. Smith National Library. Gentlemen, here's to the next Genius Cluster.
3: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Hofstra. (laughs) It is an honor to play the Lester Holt role. The questions tonight are entirely my own and hold your applause until the end. Uh, I'm Jeffrey Rosen. I'm the president of the National Constitution Center and it is such a thrill to host the second of Mount Vernon's founding debates you heard the National Constitution Center's inspiring congressional charter to be the one institution in America that brings together citizens of all perspectives for nonpartisan constitutional education and debate. And we are a beautiful and inspiring museum of We the People on Independence Mall in Philadelphia, across from Independence Hall where the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence were drafted. But we're also a national convening space for constitutional conversations, holding debates like this across the country that bring together the leading conservative and liberal scholars to debate not political questions, but constitutional questions. And we're doing that with live events like this, with this wonderful partnership with Van Vernon. We're doing it with podcasts that are reaching hundreds of thousands of people every month and we're doing it with this thrilling new educational tool that I need to plug. It's the Interactive Constitution and we just launched the app on Constitution Day. I want you to download it. Not now, I want you to listen to me uh, as I'm speaking, but this spectacular educational tool, which you can find in the App Store under Interactive Constitution, brings together the top liberal and conservative legal scholars nominated by the leading liberal and conservative lawyers organizations in America to debate every clause of the Constitution describing what they agree about and what they disagree about. Imagine being able to click on the Second Amendment and see the top liberal and conservative scholars with a thousand words about what they agree its historic purpose was, and then separate statements about what they disagree. And this beautiful model, which the College Board has made the center of the new AP history and government exams, is a model for the kind of reasoned civil dialogue that we hope to have tonight. And we're so thrilled that this debate will really uh, educate all of us about the conflicting constitutional views that define our republic. The constitutional clash between Jefferson and Hamilton continues to be felt to this day in our modern debates about the scope of federal power, the regulatory state, and the proper balance between executive power and individual liberty. And it's so exciting to have them presided over by our great friend Doug Bradburn, the visionary head of the Fred Smith library who's going to play the adjudicatory role of Washington, because after all, Hamilton and Jefferson were literally arguing before Washington and the great constitutional questions of their day, and Washington, uh, who was really the Lester Holt of his time, (laughs) would often uh, moderate and adjudicate among them. We held a phenomenal warm-up of this debate, a kind of dress rehearsal, at the National Constitution Center in Philadelphia during the Democratic National Convention. Doug joined Ed Larson, the great Washington historian, and Akhil Amar, the great constitutional scholar, uh, and it was just a spectacular conversation. And tonight, uh, this is just the dream team, uh, as as was so aptly described. We have uh, America's leading uh, Hamiltonian and Jeffersonian scholars who have agreed to uh, debate in the names of their uh, heroes. Uh, <laughs> Richard Brookheiser is uh, one of America's great uh, uh, historians. He's written about Hamilton, Madison, Washington, Governor Morris. His next book will be about John Marshall, and his latest book is Founder's Son, The Life of Abraham Lincoln. Please welcome Richard Brookheiser. We really have to have the, the handshake moment between the two debaters. So uh, it's now my great uh, <laughs> pleasure, uh, wearing a, a power blue tie and a, uh, a blazing white shirt, uh, to introduce uh, Alan Shaw Taylor. He is Professor Emeritus of History at UC Davis, a historian, the author of many books on colonial America, and Early American Colonies, America's one of America's leading Jeffersonians, and author most recently of American Revolution, A Continental History. Please welcome Alan Shaw Taylor. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. And I've uh, just uh, been informed in an important fact check that uh, Professor Taylor is now at the University of Virginia, the home of Jefferson. And uh, it couldn't be a better place for our Jeffersonian scholar. And presiding over this great, assemblage as General Washington is Doug Bradburn, founding director of the Fred W. Smith National Library for the study of George Washington and has just done so much for the intellectual life of this nation and for Mount Vernon in making the center as vibrant as it is. Uh, Once again, please welcome Doug Bradburn. Thank you, Jeff. Are we on? So let's jump right in. gentlemen, and uh, begin with the Revolutionary War. Hamilton served in the war uh, as a captain under General Washington, where he helped to organize uh, Washington's army. Jefferson notably did not serve, which earned him the disdain of his distant cousin and arch rival, uh, John Marshall. Uh, Richard, how did Hamilton's experience in the revolution shape his constitutional vision?
4: Well, first of all, Hamilton's war was a war. Uh, he, he volunteers to be part of a student militia when he's at King's College, which is now Columbia. Uh, the reason he never graduated is he left school to fight. Uh, then he became an artillery captain in a New York company. Uh, he was promoted uh, at the beginning of 1777 onto Washington's staff. And he was a colonel there for four years. Uh, he fights in eight battles. Uh, Harlem Heights, White Plains, Trenton, Princeton, Brandywine, Germantown, Monmouth, Yorktown. Uh, and then he's all, when, when he's on, of course, when he's on Washington's staff, he is at the side of, of the Commander-in-Chief along with other members of the staff. So he is experiencing the war and he's experiencing the problems of the form of government that America had. Uh, the Continental Congress. Uh, later to become mid-war, the Articles of Confederation. And um, from the Army's point of view, uh, what it meant was that when supplies were needed, uh, when uh, uniforms were needed, when weapons were needed, very often they were not forthcoming because there was no money to pay for them. Uh, This, the Congress had no power to tax. It could make requisitions upon the states. It could request money from the states. And the states gave or didn't uh, as they could or would. Uh, so the, the army is the institution in America during the Revolution which is feeling the shortfall when the shortfalls happen, and they were continuous. Um, Hamilton twice had to warn the capital of the United States during the war that troops were coming. Once it was Congress in Philadelphia when British troops were coming after the Battle of Brandywine. The second time was Congress also in Philadelphia at the end of the war when mutinous American soldiers who had not been paid uh, were going to you know, surround Congress and try to bully it to get something out of them. So um, his experience of, of American government during that time is of a weak government that is not able to fulfill its most important functions.
3: Uh, Fascinating. So Alan, as as Richard describes it, uh, Hamilton takes from his experience the need for a stronger central government. Uh, John Marshall, who also served with Washington, took a similar experience. He said at Valley Forge he came to see uh, Washington as his general and the United States as his country. Jefferson did not serve. Uh, He developed a hatred of the British because of the war, but why didn't he serve, and how did his lack of service perhaps shape his constitutional vision?
5: Well, I think there are different forms of service. So Mm -hmm. he was involved in a document that I think many of you have heard of, the Declaration of Independence, (laughs) Oh, that, (laughs) which which, uh, is a pretty significant service to the country. Uh, And uh, Jefferson was not a military man, and his finest moment was not as a military governor of virginia in a military crisis but in fairness to him it was he was operating under a state constitution that was adopted in a hurry without his approval and indeed it was against the recommendations of the format that he wanted for the state of virginia which would have allowed a more powerful governor so for jefferson his great concern is that the revolution in his mind was fought to oppose a centralized power it was the power grab by parliament Hmm. to try to centralize and consolidate the empire and in their view rationalize the empire that was the cause of american resistance and for jefferson then the essence of the revolution is to try to maintain as much state sovereignty as possible
3: absolutely fascinating general washington you are there presiding over these young uh, adjutants like uh, Hamilton and yeah. Marshall, how, how did uh, leading the Revolutionary Army shape, shape Washington's constitutional vision?
1: Well, I think it was fundamental, uh, but I think I'll, I'll mention it in in many ways, Washington learns from Hamilton and Jefferson uh, in important ways. So Washington on his way uh, to the Continental Congress as a delegate purchases a copy of, of <laughs> Jefferson's summary view of the rights of British America, which lay out the argument that uh, the, uh, the colonies have no connection to Parliament at all, and this is the point of view that the, the, uh, the Continental Congress is going to take, which is really aggressive. They're basically declaring their independence from Parliament, and it'll be two years later when they declare their independence from the Crown uh, to finish the deal. Uh, and Jefferson is somebody that Washington sees as a leading thinker in, the, uh, in that milieu. He's learning from, uh, like George Mason and others, Uh, He also sees him as really a great leader uh, in Congress. And in fact, he gets annoyed with him during the course of the war. Uh, At a certain point in the war, when things aren't going so well for the Americans, and Washington is there with his unfunded, unfed troops, and the Congress that he's dealing with is no longer filled with luminaries like the Jeffersons and the early Virginians who were there, but rather the kind of B team. And Washington writes a great letter back home to the governor of Virginia in which he calls out, where is Jefferson, where is Nelson, where is Harrison, where are all the great Virginians in this Congress? We need their leadership because the people we've got up there now are a bunch of scrubs. Uh, That's a paraphrase. (laughs) Uh, And then on the other side, you know, he's learning from Hamilton as well. Hamilton is on his staff, of course, working closely with him. Hamilton has got uh, aggressive views and he, he wants to be put in a position of command. He very quickly becomes something that's someone who's indispensable. to Washington, um, but uh, but Washington can be brusque. He's uh, you know he's very uh, placid to the public, but he sometimes has a temper that he reveals to the people working around him. And there's a great story where uh, he asks Hamilton to meet him uh, because he needs to talk to him, and he stands at the top of the stairs, and Hamilton. He says, I'll be right there. And he goes and talks to a few people, comes back late and Washington gives it to him. I've been standing here for 10 minutes at the top of these stairs yelling at him. And Hamilton basically says, well, if that's what you think, I'm out of here. And he resigns. Washington tries to make it up, tries to apologize. Hamilton leaves, splits, and goes back. And so he has that break with Hamilton too in the same way that Washington is frustrated. You know, trying to keep good people around him in, in different ways. So he, he learns from both of them, they become people that are going to be very important to him later on as president. But I think his wartime experience mirrors, uh, you know Hamilton's more than Jefferson's, in the sense that he sees the need for union, uh, for a centralized government that can do the basic things that you need to do uh, to fight a war, to raise money, to, to pay for a war, to have a coordinated diplomatic policy. Uh, and so that, that's his wartime experience. He also sees a lot more of the country than, than Jefferson, probably anybody. Uh, he's all over the place during the war, and so that has a huge impact on him.
3: Great, so let's now move from the Revolutionary War to the Constitutional <coughs> Convention. And in between, we've had the Articles of Confederation, which in the Jeffersonian spirit maintains so much state sovereignty that you need unanimous consent in order to do anything. And as a result, the states can't raise funds to support the army and they can't provide for the common defense. So the delegates gather in Philadelphia to create a government strong enough and energetic enough to achieve common purposes, but restrained enough to protect individual rights. At the Constitution Center, as uh, all of these gentlemen know, there's a beautiful room called Signers Hall, which has life-size statues of all of the framers. And in the front of the room is Washington. He's the largest man in the room, 6'3", towering over everyone else. Right next to him is Madison at uh, 5'3". Um, alert and uh, intellectual. And then standing a bit apart is Hamilton, who's not too much taller than uh, Madison, but fine-boned and proud. Uh, Jefferson, of course, is in Paris. So with setting that stage, Richard, Hamilton has a bunch of proposals at the convention. He wants to create a senators and a national governor chosen by special electors who would serve for life. He's accused of being a secret monarchist who basically wants to create the equivalent of a British king. Uh, what exactly was his constitutional vision at the convention and how was it achieved? Or not? Well, um, first, the, the first
4: thing you have to realize is that no one gets the constitution he wants. Uh, all the 39 men who sign it had some problem with it. Um, so they were all willing to concede on something. Uh, maybe Hamilton got less of the Constitution than some of the, some of the other ones did. Uh, you, you're referring to this uh, day-long oration that he gives where he lays out his plan of government. And uh, it's true, it has a, a, an executive uh, for good behavior, uh, senators for good behavior. This, this is life if they behave well. Uh, it does have a, a house uh, of three year terms chosen by universal manhood suffrage, which was actually a little more liberal than what we ended up with. Uh, and Hamilton's rationale for this is that you are always going to have in society the few and the many, and and they will always be potentially in conflict. So uh, you have to give each one of these two um, uh, you know social groupings a voice in the government. That's, that's, why you, that's why you split the legislature in that fashion. But he also, he, he, he's very concerned with having a strong uh, governor, uh, as he calls it, we would, would call it the president, uh, because he, he feels the need for a directing hand, uh, someone who can uh, direct military affairs and uh, l- later, as it turns out, foreign affairs. And uh, so he makes this speech. Uh, one of the delegates said um, it was a very good speech, uh, but uh, nothing will come of it. And you know, nothing nothing did. And in fact, Hamilton leaves the Constitutional Convention for about a month, uh, partly because uh, his other New York delegates have, have taken off. Uh, they want a weaker government uh, than the con- than the convention is producing. And so Hamilton feels he can't vote for his state all by himself. But he comes back to sign it at the end and he says, you know, nothing could be farther from my notions of a good constitution than this one. But, you know, we have a choice of this or, or anarchy. We, we have no choice. We have to ratify this. So, um, so he, uh, he accepts what his fellow delegates have produced, even though it's different in many respects from his ideas.
3: That's such an important point that uh, the spirit of compromise led people who didn't accept the document in its entirety to support it. Franklin, too, said there's much in this document that I can't accept, but I think it's about as perfect as we're likely Mm -hmm. to achieve. Alan Jefferson's in Paris, but he's getting frequent updates from his uh, ally, James Madison and he's expressing some doubts about the Constitution. He wants a Bill of Rights. He, he supports an amendment that goes even beyond what Madison supports that would have restrained corporations or prevented Congress from setting up corporations with exclusive monopoly powers. What were Jefferson's main objections to the Constitution and in what way did he overcome
5: them? Well, he is very nervous about counter-revolution in the country and Although he understood that the Articles of Confederation needed to be changed, that the government needed to have the power to regulate commerce and to negotiate trade treaties with other countries. And it needed to be able to arbitrate in a more effective way between states when they had disputes. But he did not want a federal government that could otherwise reach into the states and exercise its power directly on individuals And he was fearful. That's the sort of national government that the founders were setting up in Philadelphia. And so he wrote fascinating letters back and forth with James Madison in which Madison is trying to reassure Jefferson that you're, you're out of the picture. You're in France. You don't understand the state of the crisis in this country and that we need something capable of controlling the states and operating directly upon citizens. And Jefferson, because he knows he's out of the country, uh, agrees to just keep quiet about his concerns and, um, and to go along with what Madison is recommending because he has great respect for Madison. But as soon as he gets to see the federal government in operation, uh, he will do his best to persuade Madison that Jefferson's concerns were being realized by Alexander Hamilton's vision of what the national government should be.
3: And that uh, debate played out uh, during Washington's presidency in a moment that we'll discuss in, in a moment. But uh, Doug, what is Ra- Washington's constitutional role at the convention? He's reluctant initially to show up because he thinks it may fail. Yeah. He's also retired, he's gone to Mount Vernon. I do want to take a moment to honor the memory of a great historian of the convention Uh, Richard D. Beeman of the University of Pennsylvania who wrote a beautiful book that I strongly recommend to all of you, A Plain Honest Man. It's been called by Gordon Wood the best uh, popular account of the convention and Rick uh, just died uh, last week but his beautiful book just gives the picture of a reluctant Washington showing up because he thinks he has to but then playing a crucial, although often uh, silent and, and restrained roles. So, what was Washington's role at the convention?
1: Well, thanks, and I, I appreciate the mention of Rick Beeman as well. As many of you, you all, have been to some of the Gay Gains lectures. He was a Gay Gains lecturer here a few years back when that book came out, and uh, certainly uh, is a big loss for the early Americanist community. Alan, I, I know, know, knew him well. Uh, uh, so, uh, on that note, um, you know, it, I was. Interesting, I was reading some of, in preparation for this, because you've got to prepare for these things. You can form <laughs> mock debates.
3: You don't have to apologize yeah, for staying home to I'm, prepare.
1: I don't want to look over prepared. <laughs> I just want to look a little prepared. Yeah. So I was reading some of Jefferson's uh, uh, diary, really, a political diary of uh, the Washington administration. And he would, in many of these entries, he would have all the cabinet talking to each other. And then at the very bottom, it would say, Washington was silent. And I think that the constitutional role of Washington at the convention was his silence was incredibly powerful uh, and the presence that he had at the, at the head of that, uh, that group of men that whole summer. He was there every day. Uh, and, he, and and people knew what, what, he, um, what he believed in because he, he was voting. So people knew how Washington was voting. Uh, they talked to him out of doors, so to speak, in the taverns afterward. He was part of the Virginia team that was there early. Um, So, uh, uh, and it's clear, and you see this in the notes, Madison's notes, and the delegates are, when they're crafting the presidency, they, uh, in many ways, are looking to Washington to fill that first role of this unique office. Uh, And, you know, there's a debate of whether they should have a unitary executive or a a three-headed triumvirate, I guess. Uh, They have a unitary executive, ultimately. Uh, They debate, you know, whether this president will have different kinds of powers. Uh, and, um, and one of the delegates, I think, from South Carolina, Rutledge maybe, says, you know, we were thinking of Washington when we were designing that role. So his presence alone, and, and it's rare, I think, that we can understand what that means, but his presence alone was a powerful thing uh, at the Constitutional Convention and, and, um, and would play that role in his presidency as well.
3: Well, Rick alluded to the constitutional clashes during Washington's presidency that erupted and the greatest clash of course was that over the constitutionality of the Bank of the United States. Mm. Now we all know about that controversy from the rap version in Hamilton (laughs) musical uh, and some of us who went to law school uh, know it from studying the great case McCullough in Maryland written by John Marshall which upheld uh, the bank. Uh, favoring arguments that had persuaded uh, Washington, uh, but Hamilton and Jefferson have very different views of the necessary and proper clause of the Constitution, Article One, Section 8. You can learn all about the, intera- <laughs> the necessary and proper clause on the riveting interactive Constitution where you can read the best arguments about it, or I really feel like a constitutional <coughs> traveling salesman here, or you can read a wonderful pocket constitution published by the National Constitution Center, but I won't. I won't read Article One, Section Eight, but Richard, give us <laughs> Hamilton's view of the Necessary and Proper Clause, and why it, and, and and why it was expansive enough to justify the constitutionality of the Bank of the United States. Well,
4: before I get into the constitutionality, I, I think I want to establish why Hamilton thought it was necessary and proper. Period. Mm. Uh, there had been a financial revolution at the end of the 17th century. It's Holland was the first country to experience it. England was the second. And it was a discovery of how to make debt something that was not simply a curse, but something that could be a national benefit. It was an understanding of how to do debt financing. And they realized that if you make regular payments on your national debt, it is not a mere drag. It becomes credit. It can be monetized. It can circulate. And this, this, this was a discovery. Uh, France tried to get into this in the early 18th century. They got a credit bu- bubble and it blew up and they backed off. And that's why French banks to this day are rarely called Banque de whatever. It's Crédit Lyonnais, not Banque de Lyon. So uh, Hamilton, who understood this, one of the few people in America who got this, was hoping to bring the United States into this new financial world. And he thought a bank of the United States would inject liquidity into the American economy, it would help the government manage the national debt and pay it off reasonably and regularly. So, that, so that's why he's for it in the first place. And a lot of his colleagues, great men though they all are, they're lawyers, they're farmers, uh, they, are not, they are not equipped uh, to cope with this new world. Um, Washington takes it on faith because Hamilton's been on his staff, he knows he's a smart guy, he's, he's willing to trust him, he's willing to delegate and trust him. But, uh, okay, so the question, uh, Hamilton comes up with this plan, and then uh, the Secretary of State, uh, Thomas Jefferson, and his erstwhile friend, James Madison, raise questions about its constitutionality because there's nothing in the constitution about a bank of the United States. You know, it's just not in there. It's not a power of, uh, of Congress or, or of the government, any part of the government. Uh, so Hamilton's argument is that uh, the government is charged uh, with uh, being able to borrow on the credit of the United States. Uh, it's charged with uh, issuing uh, money uh, and, and various functions that a bank would be useful in carrying out. So he says, if the end is prescribed, the means are also prescribed, so long as they're not specifically forbidden. I mean, Obviously, if the Constitution had said the, the U.S. government will, will charter no banks, that would be the end of the discussion. But it doesn't. Uh, it, it gives certain ends. Hamilton is arguing a bank will facilitate those ends, and it is not forbidden, therefore it is constitutional. And that is the argument he makes to President Washington um, in in contradiction of the arguments Washington is getting uh, from my colleague to my left and from James Madison.
3: (laughs) Great, well, uh, uh, Alan, give us more of a sense of Jefferson's arguments. Unlike Hamilton, he believes that uh, the necessary and proper clause doesn't authorize anything but only uh, things that are actually uh, necessary and not convenient to carry out the enumerated powers. Tell us more about that and why he thinks the bank is unconstitutional.
5: Well, d- well, just as uh, Rick advanced, the, the there are two levels of the answer. The first is uh, Jefferson has a deep distrust of a national bank uh, that it will be an opportunity for financial tricksters to manipulate the economy and to accumulate wealth and to suck it out of the pockets of the great majority of Americans who are common farmers, who know what real property is, it's real estate. Uh, So Jefferson is not, um, is no friend of distant finance. And he worries that it's going to lead to a greater concentration of wealth and power in the country, to the detriment of common Americans. Mm -hmm. And Jefferson is no fan of any British institution. And the Bank of the United States is clearly modeled on the Bank of England. And just as Hamilton admired the Bank of England as um, something that enabled Great Britain to project great power in the world, the capacity of Britain to maintain fleets throughout the world's oceans, very dependent upon its ability to borrow money. And the Bank of England was that instrument. Well, Jefferson did not want the United States to be an empire. He didn't want it to have the means to project power around the globe. And he very much then wanted to prevent uh, the adoption of any kind of British institution because if you adopt one, then you're gonna adopt the others. And the ultimate other institution is the monarchy. So for Jefferson, this this is the sort of institution he doesn't wanna have. And then the second level of the argument is Where is it in the constitution? And it's a nice thing to say that you have a necessary and proper (laughs) clause, but then there are all sorts of things that, this is a a loophole you can drive uh, a massive warship through Mm -hmm. if uh, you can do anything that seems necessary and proper to achieve any of the specified enumerated powers granted to Congress
3: and the federal government. And we hear those arguments resonating today. If Congress can charter a bank, it could force citizens to buy broccoli or gym memberships. <laughs> or uh, <laughs> And Jeffersonian arguments came up in the yes. argument about the Affordable Care Act. They are still with us, as are Hamiltonian ones. Hmm. So Je- so both Doug and, uh, or rather, both Rick and Alan have helpfully given us both a policy argument in favor or against the bank and a constitutional argument in favor or against it. Doug do the same for Washington? Why did he favor it on policy grounds, and why did he ultimately decide that it comported with the Constitution? Well, that's
1: a great question, and uh, Washington is a results-oriented guy. Uh, We're talking about February of 1791. The bank bill has passed the House against these arguments that have been articulated, and Washington has to decide whether to veto the bill. James Madison is still working closely with Washington at this point. They haven't had the big break that they're going to have. Madison had helped Washington set up the presidency. Uh, Jefferson had been Secretary of State for only a year at this time. Uh, and they're in New York still. Um, and uh, is that right, are they still in New York? At any rate, they're, they, I think they're still in New York. Yeah, they're still in New York. Um, and, uh, and Washington has seen the credit of the United States rebound in what he considers a miraculous fashion. Uh, before uh, Hamilton had begun working on the credit of the United States, American bonds were junk bonds, they were worthless. Nobody wanted them, uh, you could paint your room with them, they weren't worth anything. Uh, after the first initial program of funding an assumption and the taxes being collected to pay for it, already uh, those bills were trading at near par or at par, Washington considered this to be uh, you know, just miraculous. So in that sense, he, he, he knows the credit has to be restored. He's shocked that it's turned around so quickly, and he, and he thinks that Hamilton, who's led the, these plans, you know, should be trusted in that sense, that he's, you know, this bank is a continuation of those plans to continue uh, credit. And, and so Washington is, like I said, impressed by results. He's worried about the constitutionality question, however, because Jefferson, his attorney general, Edmund Randolph, his old friend, James Madison, the father of the Constitution, they're all saying it's unconstitutional. Um, He ultimately kind of, he's leaning in the direction of supporting the bank. And in fact, I think he kind of, uh, he he sets him up a little bit because he gets the arguments of uh, Edmund Randolph and Jefferson and he lets Hamilton see these in his response argument. So tell you know so I've gotten these opinions about the unconstitutionality of the bank, everything that's been said it's nowhere in the Constitution if you can imply a power, then you can do anything uh, and and so uh, Hamilton gets to basically draft his response working off of uh, those arguments and he gets it Washington has ten days to whether to decide whether to veto the bill or not. Hamilton gets him his report on the day before the last day, and Washington agrees with Hamilton that if you have uh, you have a power that the Constitution gives to do something related to the general welfare. If it's necessary and proper, then you, can, then you can do it in the bank. He goes on to make the argument it's necessary and proper for all the reasons he lays out, reasons that Washington very much agrees with in his gut, uh, you know, that this is something that, that should happen. You know Jefferson would go on and continue to argue with Washington that the bank really creates a permanent engine for corruption. It's one thing to temporarily allow all these rich guys to get rich with the way you funded and did that. They will eventually disappear. But with the bank, you've got this permanent engine that will corrupt people. And Washington basically disagrees with his, his vision of the, of the country. And he says uh, very clearly, uh, great quotes from Washington in which he says, you know, until, uh, until reason is perfect, we have to allow for a difference of opinion. And that's what he continues to try to argue with Jefferson uh, when he comes to him and argues, and with Hamilton, is that we have to allow for differences of opinion. And that's what it ultimately was.
3: Okay, great. We've talked about these clashing views of congressional power, which continue to this day. Now let's talk about their clashing views of executive power. Mm. Richard, you tell in your book the riveting story of the election of 1800. Uh, We know from your book, as well as the musical, that after Jefferson and Burr uh, had an equal number of electoral votes, it was up to the House, and you say that Hamilton's influence was decisive in persuading the House to choose Jefferson over Burr with the fatal results that we know. Uh, Why did Hamilton throw his support behind Jefferson given their disagreement about executive power? And then if it's not too much to add the second question, what was Hamilton's vision of executive power which embraced an idea of executive prerogative that transcended the president's enumerated powers in Article Two of the Constitution?
4: Well, I, I think the short answer to why uh, Hamilton threw his way to Jefferson was that he knew Burr. <laughs> but, uh, you know, they, they were lawyers together in New York. I, I think the number of lawyers in the city at that time was 30 or 35. It's a very small legal world. They saw a lot of each other. They argued cases together, sometimes on opposite <laughs> sides, sometimes on the same side. Um, they got along. Uh, Hamilton says in one letter, I'm personally well uh, with Colonel Burr. But, but he just thought that they're, uh, look, he, he knew what Jefferson thought, and he, and he believed most of it was wrong. But he knew that Jefferson, that's what Jefferson thought, and what he believed, and that's what he'd do. With Burr, you never knew. Uh, he thought that here's an ambitious man, uh, here is a loose cannon, here is someone that we cannot predict what he would do were he to get uh, this power. Now, in one of the, he, he writes a barrage of letters to um, members of his own party, the Federalist Party, um, in the house and out of the house when this, this question is being decided. And uh, one of his most interesting, he, he starts off with this analysis of Jefferson. And he, he ticks off all the reasons why he d- dislikes him. He, he says he's a contemptible hypocrite. Um, he's tinctured with... <laughs> uh, he's tinctured with... Don't interrupt. Um, yeah. He has French revolutionary ideas. He's tinctured with philosophy. There are like five or six things. And then he takes a deep breath and he says, but... And then he gives the reasons why he's not so bad. And one of them directly relevant to your question is that Jefferson is not an enemy of executive power. Uh, he may talk the game, he talks, but, and the way Hamilton puts it is, uh, he expects to inherit this. So he wants a good estate. He wants to come, Jefferson wants to come into a good estate. He will not chop down the, the, the office of the presidency if he gets it. He will enjoy being president, and he will, he will use those powers. <laughs> And, and so, and then he launches into his, his demolition of, of Burr. But, but, it's, but it, it's interesting, he's saying, you know, Je- Jefferson is not uh, quite the small government man all the way down the line that he professes to be. Um, he will not diminish the office of the presidency. And that's an assurance that he gives to his his Federalist uh, friends in Congress. Even though we may not like uh, some or most of his policies, but he won't uh, restrict the office.
3: Fascinating, and although you understandably bristled at this uh, scurrilous attack, <laughs> Mr. Jefferson, um, uh, and try to constrain your eye rolling as well, it's just uh, very distracting. Um, Uh, Hamilton was right because Jefferson as president, despite his strict constructionist principles and his notion that the president should only exercise enumerated powers in theory, ended up uh, with the Louisiana Purchase and other exercises of executive power, according to Henry Adams, uh, embracing a vision of the executive far more sweeping than the one he'd championed uh, before the office. So tell us both about his theoretical vision of executive power and how he exercised it in practice.
5: Well, as Rick quite, rightly pointed out, Jefferson is a man who does want to exercise the powers of the presidency in a robust fashion in foreign policy. Mm. He made a very strong distinction between um, the powers of the federal government in foreign policy and within that foreign policy he emphasized the role of the president and he did not want Congress to limit the powers of the executive in foreign policy. His concern is um, primarily with a federal government that is going to be robust in domestic policy and setting up banks or maybe funding internal improvements. So Jefferson, uh, what president in this country has shut down commerce with the world for nearly two years and then used uh, military force to guard the borders against Americans trading across those borders? Uh, That wasn't something that Alexander Hamilton and George Washington did uh, for such a long period. They had a very brief embargo. Uh, But Jefferson is willing to use federal power uh, in foreign policy. Now, the Louisiana Purchase you mentioned, he had constitutional doubts about that. And that's a case where James Madison had to say to him, You've got to keep quiet on those constitutional debts. <laughs> we don't have time for you to go and get a constitutional amendment to allow this purchase of foreign territory. And there's this guy named Napoleon Bonaparte who changes his mind. So you have offered to you the sweetest deal that will ever be offered any nation in the world. You accept it and you put your constitutional scruples on hold. So Jefferson sent it forward to Congress, did not comment on the constitutionality of it, and then kept quiet and let Congress do the smart thing, which was to, excuse me, the Senate to do the smart thing and to accept that treaty of purchase.
3: Uh, I I need a quick uh, follow-up, just in the interest of uh, fact-checking here. Uh, Adams was a a partisan of his his his, uh, great uh, grandfather and and of Hamilton and of strong federal power. He said Jefferson was a constitutional hypocrite as a result, was he?
5: You can't believe everything Henry (laughs) Adams (laughs) writes. (laughs) You can't believe everything an Adams (laughs) writes. Uh, Henry Adams was a bit of a bitter man, because of his grandfather's unfortunate political experiences. Mm. So. You can say he was a hypocrite, but how many of us in this room would say he did the wrong thing in accepting the Louisiana Purchase? When you're President of the United States, you have to make some very difficult calls.
4: I should also say that Hamilton uh, supported the Louisiana Purchase. He was one of the few Federalists to do that, and his only problem with it is he thought we should have just taken it.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Cheaper. Right. Gen- Gen- General Washington, uh, you also had uh, important decisions about executive power, um, and some criticized you. I don't know why I'm anthropomorphizing you at this moment, <laughs> Doug, but I'll, I'll keep this I one going. I can't be Washington, exactly. Martin, that's for uh, sure. Mar- w- Washington was uh, criticized for expanding the president's enumerated powers under Article II, especially in uh, declaring wars without congressional Approval. What was Washington's vision of executive power? How robust was it, and did he stretch the boundaries of the Constitution?
1: Well, I think he defined the office of the presidency fundamentally uh, by asserting uh, power. Uh, a couple obvious cases that come to mind that Jefferson's gonna learn from or and, and actually be a part of trying to figure out is the uh, the power to declare what treaties are operative and what countries can be recognized. And, you're gonna see Jimmy Carter do that when he recognizes revolutionary Iran. Uh, and, and there's many, many other examples, but Washington uh, basically abrogates the treaty from 1778 without congressional uh, approval. This is a treaty with France. The French Revolution has turned into a war, uh, a war War, well, it will be a World War, but a war against Britain. A lot of Americans believe that uh, they should fight on the side of the French. The cause of liberty is the cause of Americans. Uh, We should honor our treaty of 1778 with our great French allies, which a treaty which would have allowed the French to use American ports basically to arm their vessels. And uh, by abrogating that treaty in the executive by proclamation, Washington is asserting the authority of the executive uh, over uh, these kinds of decisions. Uh, And it's a crucial one because it basically says we're gonna have a strict neutrality between Britain and France. Neither of them will be allowed to arm vessels. Uh, here. Uh, And uh, and he also, in the course of the politics of that moment, really establishes and asserts the authority of the executive branch over foreign policy, Uh, something that, as we see with Jefferson, is very important to his point of view. Hamilton was uh, uh, an ally in Washington's as they're arguing all this out in 1792, 93, and um, and it's a crucial moment in in the definition of the executive branch of government because the Constitution says that Congress has the power to declare war, but who has the power to declare peace? And Washington's essentially declaring a policy of neutrality uh, which which needed to be established because Americans were going off and and basically fighting the British on their own. And so it's a big question in a Republican government. uh, If a citizen decides they wanna do something, do they have the right to just do it? How do you make sure that the nation Uh, has a policy that will restrain them that can be enforced by the power of law and that's what Washington's trying to establish.
3: Wonderful. Uh, We're gonna turn to your questions in a moment. Thank you for writing them down. But I wanna ask, you've heard, ladies and gentlemen, the competing and clashing constitutional (laughs) visions of. Alexander Hamilton and Thomas Jefferson. You've seen the Hamiltonian vision which favors a strong centralized government and favors the interests of the financial classes and capitalists and, according to his critics, monopolists and financiers. And you've seen the Jeffersonian vision which prefers constrained, small-scale state governments, farmers and agricultural interests and denounces Hamilton as an economic royalist. Uh, this strain runs throughout American history. On the Jeffersonian side, we have Andrew Jackson and Louis Brandeis and Woodrow Wilson and uh, Franklin Roosevelt all favoring uh, the small man over the power of what Brandeis unforgettably called our financial oligarchy. And we have the Hamiltonians uh, represented b- uh, by uh, the, the Federalists under um, Washington and. Adams and Lincoln and uh, Marshall and uh, the post new deal state representing strong central government. So, uh, uh Richard, uh d- d- do we live in a hamiltonian or uh, jefferson jeffersonian world and uh, which world should we live in? <laughs> we live in a
4: jeffersonian one.
3: Hmm. Yeah. Uh, Interesting.
4: I wrote, you know, I wrote a book about Hamilton. I did a documentary on him for PBS. Uh I also just love the story of the guy's life. And and certainly you can look around America and, and see his fingerprints everywhere. But dreams are also important. And Jefferson is the most eloquent, well with Lincoln, the most eloquent exponent of our aspirations and our dreams and our ideals. And you know, the the founders were, were good writers, uh, m- many of them, but uh, Jefferson was a great writer. You know, Mark, Mark, it's like Mark Twain's difference between the right word and the almost right word. He said it's the difference between lightning and lightning bug. Well, they're the good writers <laughs> and then they're the great writers. And the, the great writers are also great, partly because they have great thoughts. So um, I would have to say, Maybe maybe our waking hours are in a Hamiltonian world, but our, but our unconscious, uh, and, and more than that, our ideals are
3: Jeffersonian. Thank you for that fascinating admission against interest. <laughs> uh, Alan, uh, Hamiltonian or Jeffersonian world, and which one should we live in?
5: Well, we live in both. Um, we, we, and I think that, that's a point that I take from Rick's point, is we, we live in a contradictory political culture our institutions have become Hamiltonian. And the ambitions of the nation state have become Hamiltonian. We've become a superpower, which is not what Jefferson wanted, but it's something that Hamilton hoped the United States could grow into, that it could be a power that could compete with the British Empire down the road. Well, the United States has more than transcended the power of Great Britain in the world. And it is a government that, Raises enormous amounts of money to sustain uh, its powers in the world and at home, and uh, so and we have a federal reserve system that owes quite a bit to Alexander Hamilton's ideas about national finance. We live in a country where the national debt uh, is uh, ongoing. So I would say that institutionally we live in Hamilton's world, but I think in terms of our political culture of what we wish we were, uh, we still wish to be in Jefferson's world.
3: Interesting. Well, I, ladies and gentlemen, after the questions, we're gonna vote about which world you think we should be living in. But Doug, uh, General Washington had to adjudicate between the constitutional visions of Hamilton and Jefferson. Uh, whom did we pick, and do we live in Hamilton, Jefferson, or, or Washington's uh, world?
1: Well, I'd like to think we live in the Washington world, but I think that uh, there's, two, there's one, one anecdote and then one, uh, um, more uh, expansive thought. Uh, I think Washington wanted both Hamilton and Jefferson to consider becoming president. Uh, you see there's uh, conversations in their letters and in, in the anecdotes around them at different periods. Uh, Jefferson certainly before the arrival of Genet in, in the fall of 1792 when they're struggling with the British and the Spanish uh, and he's turning towards France and, and considers, you know, we need to be closer to France and he and Jefferson have been constantly talking about retirement. Washington wants to retire. He wants to figure out a way to, to come back home. Jefferson wants to retire. And I think Washington is, in, in some ways, trying to see if Jefferson will be the next person who could stand in the presidency in that role. And it's, you know, as we see, lots of Secretary of States will go on to become presidents in, in that early period where the Secretary of State is really the most important Office, office in Washington's mind, uh, certainly not the vice president who was someone he just had, you know, get away John Adams, leave us alone. Uh, and then Hamilton as well, and certainly later after that, I mean, Hamilton is someone he leans on very heavily. I think politically he recognizes that Hamilton would be a problem, but he's somebody that he would have trusted in, in that office. And Washington I think creates for us the legacy of Washington in this question as it's framed is that he is the father of the country we are a Washington, we are all the children of Washington, precisely in the sense that he played out the ideal role of the political leader that we want to have, a cross party. Uh, a disinterested, virtuous, uh, potent, uh, honorable person that can fill a role in a representative government that you can trust with power, and that you'll expect will leave the scene when they're not needed anymore. And I think that's the the aspiration of Americans when we think about in our mind's eye, what is a political leader we wanna have? It's the virtues that Washington uh, played out in that role that we still look to and still desire our politicians to live up to. Now, in our more rational moments, we say maybe that's not possible, but I do think there's that underlying frustration amongst Americans precisely because this, there's this ideal of a Washington out there that we all look to as, as, our, as our perfect leader.
3: Uh, beautifully said. All right, I think it's time for your questions and I'll ask for them now. I should note that these have not been vetted by the Commission on Presidential Debates. And oh my, this is great. In order to read them, I'll have to take out my constitutional reading glasses. There are more questions here. There is a wonderful anecdote, of course, in Rick Beeman's book about how Washington is facing the possibility of troops who are going to rebel because they're not being paid. And he doesn't know uh, what to do. And he takes out his reading glasses so he can read the speech that he's composed. And he says, you'll forgive me, gentlemen, but my eyes have grown weary in the service of my country. And these uh, soldiers weep, weep. They've never seen Washington with his glasses before. So if you weep at this incredibly moving site, then I'll, I'll forgive you, I know it's, it's difficult, but I've really you know, served this debate and, and, and devoted my, my life to it, I should say. And uh, it's now time to read your questions. Okay, uh, thoughts on executive power versus the legislative branch. Were Hamilton and Jefferson closer together on this issue or is Jefferson a bigger fan of a stronger legislature? Excellent question. Rick. Um, Jefferson,
4: I think worked through Congress with a hidden hand. He, he professed to defer to Congress, but he kept them on a tight rein. He had, he had majorities in both houses throughout his administration. Uh, it it b- blew up at the very end with his embargo policy, which turned out to be um, hugely unpopular. And, and his own majorities in Congress ended it at the tail end of his presidency. So that was certainly a black eye. But, but until then, um, Thomas Jefferson uh, really runs Congress. And, uh, and he does it behind the scenes. I mean, he, he professes not to be doing this. He professes to defer. But, but he knows what it is he's deferring to, because he's told them ahead of time what they should be doing.
3: Interesting. So Alan, he's running Congress. But is he once again, as president, betraying the constitutional scruples that led him to argue, in theory, for constitutionally constrained congressional power?
5: No, I don't think he is because um, ultimately he is going to execute the laws passed by Congress. Now, he is a very smart manager of the legislative process but its he knows he can't send orders down to Congress. What he can do is he can work with those members of Congress who uh, are willing to work with him to make clear to them what he thinks would be the best form that legislation could take. And he was remarkably effective at holding together his party, which was a party of many different factions and many different ambitions. And this is a challenge that every president faces. And if we look at the presidents that we've known in our own time, how they have struggled with Congress, uh, it's it's almost magical, the power that Jefferson had, which is not a power he, he Of of dictation at all. But it's a power of, he knew how to talk to people in small groups. And he would convene members of Congress at the White House for dinners. And often he would not talk directly about politics. But he's building trust with groups of men who can then go and sometimes set aside their own preferences to make the sort of compromises that Jefferson is looking for in legislation. So Jefferson ultimately understood that Congress is more fundamentally the voice of the entire nation, particularly in domestic policy, and that it is the president's role to execute the laws of Congress but perhaps to give a guiding hand behind the scenes <laughs> so that Congress perhaps. will do the right thing.
3: Uh, just to ensure that General Washington, like Gary Johnson, is included in, in, in this debate, I'm going to exclude. <laughs> he, well, he was certainly, not General Stein Washington, is. you're no, you're no, uh, you're no uh, libertarian. <laughs> but yeah. uh, who did, the, the founders feared congressional abuse more than hmm. executive abuse. Did, did Washington share that concern? <sighs>
1: That's a good question. Um, you know, Washington didn't seem to ever express those kind of, you know, we can get ruled over by, uh, you know, th- 200 tyrants as easily as one tyrant. That's a Jeffersonian line from the 1780s. And, and you see that turn away from that, the, the notion of actually balance uh, and having a stronger executive emerges in the 1780s in part because of the experience with legislatures that were out of control. The state legislatures didn't have a balancing executive. Many of the governors didn't have a veto power, and that's one reason it's brought into the Constitution is the sense that, uh, you know, the, the original uh, worry was about the royal government and these colonial royal governors who'd been so powerful. Well, will they get rid of them? But then they realize, you know, a bunch of legislators can be uh, just as foolish as one person, and so the the American practice of balancing. Uh, these, two, these two different uh, bodies, the executive and the legislature, is something that emerges in, in that period and Washington is definitely a part of that and, and plays that role as president.
3: Great. Well, in order to get through as many of these great questions as possible, I think I'll direct this one uh, just to Richard. And I must congratulate the audience on your excellent penmanship. <laughs> it's really remarkable uh, how uh, in the spirit of this uh, beautiful document-based place it is. Uh, Richard uh, Brookheiser, here's a beautifully written uh, question <laughs> that says Hamilton and Madison both shared the vision and worked together on the Constitutional Convention in collaboration with the Federalist Papers, so why did Madison then turn into an enemy of Hamilton so harshly afterward?
4: Jefferson. Jefferson came oh. back to the United States from Paris. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Jefferson, uh, Jefferson was the most important person in Madison's life, except for Dolly. You know, in in a very, in a very different way, obviously. But uh, Jefferson was the, the cool older brother that Madison never had. Madison was the eldest child of his family. He he taught his younger siblings. I think some of his political skills were gained by you know teaching little kids. That's not not bad for. <laughs> Uh, Hurting legislators to to have had that experience, but but so here 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 is Jefferson. Obviously, they're they're both smart, but you know Madison may even be uh, more brilliant than Jefferson, but Jefferson just has um, a flash. He has a quirkiness. Uh, He has a kind of unpredictable lightning-like brilliance, and I think Madison was as charmed by it, certainly as charmed, at least as charmed by it as we are, and much more so because he's seeing this face to face. He's, you know, he's, he's living next to this guy. He's corresponding with him. And, you know, Jefferson comes back and, and he begins to see things in a new light. I, I really do think it's as, I don't want to say as simple as that because, because it's also profound. I mean, it, it has to do with all the levels of these two men's personalities. But I think that, that is the, that's where we have to start.
3: Did Madison have a man crush on Jefferson?
4: He, uh, he admired him. You know, uh, that's a modern, like, I'm, uh, I'm uh, tweeting. <laughs> no, no, but, but he admired him profoundly. Admired him profoundly, and and Jefferson knew it and returned it. And his last letter to to Madison is says he, he says, "Take care of me when I'm dead. You know, take care of my reputation." And of course, Madison was going to do that. He was not going to ever
3: let Jefferson down. Ever. Superb. Um, uh, Alan, given today's imperial presidency, did Hamilton prevail over Jefferson in the end?
5: Well, that was the point that I made earlier. Is that um, was. You could certainly say that Jefferson believed in something of an imperial presidency. Uh, He didn't believe in the instruments of imperial power, however, he didn't believe in having a substantial navy, uh, although he ended up keeping one. Um, But it was tiny by the standards of the Royal Navy of Great Britain. Uh, He didn't believe in having a substantial standing army, and indeed uh, these institutions made him nervous that they would be instruments that an American Caesar could seize power, and when he th- thought about uh, potential American Caesars, uh, there, w- there were some candidates in his mind, and one of them was Hamilton and another was Aaron Burr. And so uh, I do think that the uh, instruments of uh, global power that we we now have are things that Jefferson would have been uncomfortable with. Uh, but. Uh, Short of having those powers, he certainly wanted the executive branch to be the dominant one in conducting foreign policy. But he imagined a foreign policy whose primary purpose was to conduct commerce and to preserve peace in the world.
3: Here's a question for General uh, Washington, Doug. How much, if at all, did Washington's view of the French Revolution and Jefferson's championing of it influence Washington's views of Jefferson's constitutional ideas?
1: Yeah, that's a great question yes. Be- because the French Revolution, as Rick would point out, uh, you know, it, it begins, the fall of the Bastille happens in July of 1789, and Washington is inaugurated as the first president in April of 1789. So his whole presidency, this happens to all presidents, no matter who we end up electing. They, they have their debates and they argue about what they're gonna do and what they're gonna do, and then stuff happens. Uh, and uh, in this case, you know, the French Revolution is, imagine the most important country in the, the Eurocentric world, the center of culture and life, 20 million people imploding. And, and the whole world is gonna be affected by all the world the Americans care about is gonna be affected by it. And, um, and so it's gonna be a dominant political problem for the age. It's gonna lead to the War of 1812. It's gonna, you know, it's gonna last for the next five presidents. And Washington's there at the start. And of course, at the beginning, it's a constitutional revolution. It looks like uh, Washington actually, uh, after the first year, is writing that it looked looked a little dicey there, but it it looks like it's going to be okay. in this letter he writes to Catherine Macaulay Graham. He gets the key to the Bastille sent to him by Lafayette, which is in the mansion house here at Mount Vernon, which you can go and see 365 days a year at this estate Uh, that doesn't take government money. so that's here, and Washington in that, in that moment is, you know, he, he, he's worried, but he's content. Uh, and as I said, even in the fall of 1792, when the French Republican armies now, well, the king is in, he's not dead yet, uh, he's arrested, or at least Washington doesn't know he's dead yet, um, and they're having some success militarily, and the Americans are getting a lot of pressure from the British and the Spanish And Washington and Jefferson are are really eye to eye on France is probably a place we need to look for an ally here to get some of the things we want. But that changes dramatically over the course of the next year of 1793. The uh, uh, the exuberant, enthusiastic, young, dashing, a little bit crazy French uh, ambassador Edmond Charles Genet arrives as the first ambassador of the Republic of France. And he causes a stir because people love him and Federalists love to hate him. I mean, he's awful because he is arguing that the French basically can do what they want, that the Americans have this treaty with them, uh, that he wants to raise an army in Kentucky and uh, and march it and attack Louisiana, and Jefferson's saying, no, that's not legal, you can't do that, and Janae's like, well, we'll see, I'll do this, you know. That's my French <laughs> uh, <laughs> Excellent. And, and, you need and, to work on yeah, that. I mean, and, and so wa- Washington in that year really <laughs> develops a distrust of, of, of Jefferson. Because Jefferson, although he's saying all the right things, Jefferson is really uh, seen as a partisan for Genet and supportive of Genet, uh to Washington. I mean, he expresses this to him in the sense that he, he's, not, he's afraid that Jefferson is not thinking of the interest of the nation first. And so that's really the beginning of the end of their relationship. As I said, I think even before that, Washington could have imagined Jefferson replacing him. But after that, uh, he allows Jefferson to retire. Uh, It's it's really the birth of the opposition party to his administration in in an aggressive manner. Um, John Adams writes a letter to Jefferson, uh, a great letter, uh, in you know 1812 or 13 or whenever, and he's saying, you don't remember the terrorism of that summer of 1793 when 10,000 people in Philadelphia were singing La Marseillaise and promising to drag Washington out of his house and execute him at the guillotine, you know, because you were a part of it. And, uh, uh, and that, that was the spirit of that summer of 93. It was a very dangerous time from Washington's point of view, for the country's uh, point of view, for its future. Uh, Ultimately, some people argue that the only reason America didn't have a revolution of government in that year was because of the yellow fever uh, hit uh, Philadelphia and and it it kind of everybody died basically. So, so, uh, so so, uh, yes, the French Revolution is the key. It's the key.
3: Excellent. I mean, not the yellow fever, but the the answer. You Uh, live in uh, well, you work in Philly. I do. It's really things are (laughs) a little bit better, but yes. (laughs) All right, here is a question for Rick about Jefferson and the 2016 election. And although the National Constitution Center has to be strenuously nonpartisan, our great audience does not. I should mention the National Constitution Center too is an inspiring private nonprofit that receives little <laughs> government support and nonpartisanship is an arduous business. But here's the excellent question. Richard, uh, do you see a parallel with the Jefferson-Burr contest in 1800 and Hamilton's decision to support his political foe Jefferson and the Clinton-Trump decision so many common-sense Republicans are forced to make this November? Well, the
4: one, um, yeah, I've thought about this. Uh, my my magazine, National Review, ran, ran an issue. It was called Against Trump, and this was, this was early in the spring when he was one of the many uh, Republican candidates, and uh, we haven't backed off from that. Uh, I think the big difference uh, in the parallel would be that in this, this letter that I mentioned, where, where Hamilton is writing to a Federalist in Congress, mm-hmm. and you know he goes through all the reasons he dislikes Jefferson, but then he then he starts pulling it all back and saying, but you know he's this and he's that, uh, and, and his last pro-Jefferson reason is um, there's no possibility of him being corrupted. So, so that would uh, sort of break your implicit parallel. <laughs> <laughs>
5: A question for
3: Alan.
4: (laughs) (coughs) In other words, I I don't think there's any easy way out.
3: Thank you for sharing. (laughs) Isn't Thomas Jefferson, with his extravagant spending leading to a debt riddled estate, the last person one would ask about economic policies?
5: Well, uh, Jefferson's financial (laughs) problems come after his presidency. And he uh, is in part victim of his poor judgments, uh, particularly in his friends, (laughs) Uh, in that he co-signed notes uh, for people who were uh, greater spendthrifts than he was. And then when they died bankrupt, he became responsible for their debts as well as his own at a time when there was an economic uh, depression afflicting agriculture and Virginia was the hardest hit state. So Jefferson and his personal finances before the 18-teens was, I would not hold him up as a model. I wouldn't mm-hmm. hold up any Virginian except for maybe John Marshall as a model of Washington. man or George Washington. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. For example. I, 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 I forgot where I was. <laughs> well rebuked. <laughs> uh, but, um, you, know, he, he wasn't, uh, you know, he wasn't the worst of the Virginians by any means.
3: That's a great campaign slogan. Right? Yes. <laughs> Not the worst of Virginia. <laughs> well, it, it would work in today's there are politics. Worse <laughs> yeah, there are worse candidates.
5: Yeah.
3: Not so bad as right. Thomas Paine. Okay, um, uh, Doug. If Jefferson's view of strict construction was accepted by George Washington, could the U.S. Constitution continue into the modern era?
1: Well, that's a difficult question. I mean, the modern era is very far. Obviously, I, I mean. Historians argue that Washington's uh, going with uh, with Hamilton's uh, construction um, uh, was crucial in in maintaining the Constitution. I mean, Jefferson would have strenuously argued that that's wrong, um, but uh, I think it's I think it's it's fundamental to um, creating an effective executive in the 1790s, uh, uh, and and as Washington would say, you know, it's uh, as long as reason isn't perfect, we have to have an ability to have a difference of opinion, so.
3: Um, we're gonna have closing arguments in a moment. I should warn you, since I didn't warn you about this before. The last minute homework assignment, just so <laughs> you can think about it, uh, <laughs> candidates, is a brief uh, statement to the audience about why Hamilton and Jefferson's vision of c- uh, congressional power over the Constitution is the correct one and should be accepted. Uh, But while you're thinking about that, we'll have just one or two, and then you're going to vote in this important constitutional election of 2016. Um, But I'm going to ask this final question, I think, which uh, says, because so many of the writers of the Constitution had doubts about the document, did many uh, reflect years later on how hard it was and whether it went in the right direction? Alan, why don't you do that since Jefferson's doubts were more acute than Hamilton at the time?
5: Um, Well, I think if if we look at the founders who are still alive by the 1820s, and early 1830s, there aren't many that are left alive by the early 1830s. Uh, They, I think many of them, and we think about John Adams and and Jefferson in particular, uh, were very discouraged. And Jefferson was particularly discouraged by the Missouri crisis because he felt that the compromise uh, drew a line, a geographic line across the country, defining part of the country as to be free of slavery and part of the country to be a country with slaves. And his concern with that was that this would be a line that would be the recurrent focus of political acrimony that would divide the regions of the country and that this would doom the union. And we can see in retrospect, he's right about that. It did, it did you know, blow up the union in the 1860s and it would be put together again. Uh, and one of the remarkable things about it is that Abraham Lincoln puts it together and puts together a union that is much more on Hamiltonian terms, but he does it with Jeffersonian rhetoric. And there's a certain uh, brilliant um, fictional skill to to Abraham Lincoln's capacity to turn Thomas Jefferson into a consistent exponent of the union and of human dignity for everybody. Jefferson did believe in human dignity, but he was willing to, allow states to create boundaries and allow states alone to have the responsibility to decide whether or not to have slavery as a legal form of property. And that was the great tragedy, I think, of Jefferson's political imagination. But it was not unique to Jefferson. It was shared uh, among the political leadership of all the southern states and that imagination was also shared by many northern Democrats of that generation. So this is a very long-winded answer to your question. That there were things that the Constitution proved incapable of coping with. And the greatest thing that the Constitution failed to cope effectively with was the presence of slavery in the country. And the country had to be reinvented in many ways during the Civil War. And it was Lincoln's genius to bring together strands of Jefferson and strands of Hamilton in order to help the Republican Party of that day to recreate a country without slavery.
3: That is a resonant and memorable description of Lincoln's constitutional vision, his attempt to achieve what you called Hamiltonian ends with Jeffersonian rhetoric, and of course it calls to mind Herbert Crowley's famous description of Theodore Roosevelt and the new nationalism trying to achieve uh, Jeffersonian uh, ends with Hamiltonian means. Um, So a dichotomy between Hamilton and Jefferson's constitutional visions may be artificial, but debates require winners and losers, ladies and gentlemen. So we're now gonna have closing arguments, and I'm gonna ask you to begin, Rick, by telling us why Hamilton's constitutional vision of uh, Congressional and executive power is the correct one and why the audience should vote for it.
4: How many of you are subsistence farmers?
3: (laughs) (laughs) Show show of hands, (laughs) I rest my case. Mr. Jefferson, same question to you. (laughs) Why is your constitutional... How many Americans
5: of 1790 were subsistence farmers? Zero. (laughs) Now, this is one of the great myths of American history, is that farmers were subsistence (laughs) farmers. Was Jefferson a subsistence farmer? Was Madison? He had
4: slaves. Well, uh, there were many people... If you're slave owners, you can also raise your hand.
1: <laughs> well, in
5: Virginia, uh, in many counties, 50% of the people were slave owners. And they weren't slave owners of, on the scale of Jefferson or Madison, owning, or of George Washington, owning 100 plus, they would own two, three, four, five. And then there were lots of farmers. And the American farmer did not want to live then any more than he did, does now without consumer goods. And the consumer goods had to be imported. Uh, They had to be imported largely from Britain. Uh, Jefferson hoped that there could be some substitution that more goods would be imported from France. But it is a myth to say that Jefferson wanted the country not to engage in foreign commerce. Uh, Jefferson indeed hoped that the factories of America would remain overseas, that they would remain in Europe, because he feared that if the country industrialized then uh, you would have much greater extremes of wealth and poverty. Uh, But Rick's point is, in fact, uh, uh, if we take away the word subsistence and recognize that American farmers have always produced in part for the global market. And the United States' uh, exports were booming under the Washington administration. And the chief thing that is booming is the export of wheat. So it is a glorious time to be an American small farmer because you're not just growing crops for your own family. You're also growing crops that you can sell overseas so you can have nicer things in your parlor like a mirror and nicer plates. So the uh, the uh, living standard of Americans, of common American farmers, improves dramatically during Washington's administration and would continue to uh, uh, improve under the Jefferson administration because of global trade. But we do live in a world which has been industrialized, and we do live in a a world in which the United States has global power. Uh, And uh, I'm not sure that we can turn our way against that, so I'm ending up arguing really in favor of of Rick's (laughs) fundamental (laughs) proposition that we live in a Hamiltonian world, uh, that we uh, ought to recognize that fact and uh, not, um, not pretend that we don't.
3: Well, in that case, let me refine uh, the question, which, I, uh, which was a good description of the world we live in, but I, asked, uh, I want the audience to vote on uh, which w- what, what world should we live in? Which constitutional vision do you find more appealing? So Rick, last chance to describe why you think that Hamilton's vision of an uh, expansive uh, Congress Uh, empowered to pass any laws that were necessary and appropriate to achieve uh, enumerated ends, even if the powers weren't explicitly enumerated, uh, is uh, appropriate and uh, why the audience should vote for it?
4: Because we don't live in a golden age. Uh, We live in a world of crises. Uh, As Doug said, uh, candidates say, oh, I'll do X, Y, and Z, and then they get in the office and then fate comes barging in the door. And it's not just for presidents, it's for all of us. And we need a government which is able to respond to those crises. And uh, the Hamiltonian form of government is best adapted to do that.
3: And Alan, in an age of uh, criticisms of uh, overreaching executive and congressional power from uh, both sides of the aisle, can you please uh, make an argument to the audience about why Jefferson's vision of a more constitutionally constrained federal government should prevail.
5: Well, Jefferson wanted uh, the federal government to be constrained because he believed that democracy functioned most effectively at the state level. So we if we take it out of context and we say it's just he favors state sovereignty, we leave out his most fundamental commitment, which is to democracy he and for a man of his time for a man of his wealth he it is extraordinary his willingness to trust in the judgment of common people and there were many of his peers in this great generation of political leadership uh, including most of the members of the constitutional convention who had greater doubts about um, the political wisdom of common men, and we're trying to design institutions that could somehow set boundaries on the power of democracy. And Jefferson is is a much greater enthusiast about a government that could be responsive to public opinion on a consistent basis. And so I think that um, the, the thing from Jefferson that we can most cherish in our own time is the hope that a government founded upon the will of the majority offers the greatest security for the liberties and opportunities of everybody of any form of government on earth.
3: Thank you very much uh, for those eloquent closing statements. Ladies and gentlemen, it's time for our constitutional votes. Uh, (laughs) Please raise your hand if you believe, uh, if you are more persuaded by the Hamiltonian vision and believe that we should live in a world where the President and Congress have broad uh, constitutional authority to meet exigencies as they see them. And who prefers the Jeffersonian view that a more constrained Congress and president are appropriate? Ladies and gentlemen, it's not quite split, but it's a close vote. Uh, I think it's going to the Electoral College, and this has been an absolutely (laughs) superb discussion. A combination of both. A combination? Who Uh, prefers? Uh, Well, you can, okay. Uh, uh, Go ahead. You want. You want. Washington want to a, gets the. Washington wins. Uh, yeah. Okay. Absolutely. Good. Do we, do Let's let Doug it. take it away. Doug, <laughs> make an argument for how Washington combined both visions, and why everyone should vote for you. Well, look. Uh, I just remember Washington
1: <clears throat> becoming president, writing about the experience. He, he says, "The American Constitution is the last great experiment in human happiness under civil society." It was to be a government of laws as well as a government of accommodation. I think those are the things that we need to remember. It's an experiment. It's an ongoing challenge to try to realize human happiness through laws and accommodation. And that's the great challenge that we have going
3: forward. That's an easy question to pose for a vote. If General Washington were on the ballot today, who would vote for him? (laughs) 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 Absolutely. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in thanking our wonderful debaters.
1: Well done, gentlemen.
0: We hope you enjoyed this week's discussion. The Washington Library looks forward to continuing these conversations about our early American history. Please visit mountvernon.org forward slash library to learn more about the library's resources and programs. And remember, Mount Vernon is open 365 days a year and looks forward to welcoming you. Thank you, and we'll see you next week.